It's Ask the Pro Part 2, where I answer questions from my students and cover some current golf topics. In this solo edition, I give my take on Phil Mickelson and his comments regarding the PGA Tour, what it takes to manage your game properly on the golf course, and whether or not we need shot clocks in the world of professional golf. All this and some in-depth instruction for your game on the Driving Improvement Podcast with Mark Russo right now. Well, welcome in, everybody, to the Driving Improvement Podcast, Ask the Pro, Part 2 edition. Uh, been a while since I did this one, so I uh, did one of these last year and had a lot of fun with it, just kind of covering some topics and having a good time here down in the studio. Uh, and today, really, it's going to be a lot of fun because what I've done today is I've reached out to my long-term students who I uh, lovingly call the nest, my student community, and I asked them for feedback on what they wanted to uh, to hear. So today we're really going to dive in um, into the game a little bit. Uh, obviously, a lot of my podcasts cover failure and success, and I've talked to a lot of people outside of golf as well. But today's going to be a little bit more on the golf side, and we're going to cover some topics that my students uh, wanted to hear about. And so hopefully they'll help some of you out there. Maybe they'll some uh, spur some conversation, get you thinking about some things, maybe help your game a little bit. Uh, and, you know, we'll see where it takes us. Uh, before we get into that, though, I think, you know, I want to cover a couple of topics, too, that are sort of uh, pertinent to where we are right now with the game. And I think it's kind of hard, um, frankly, it's kind of hard not to talk about what's going on lately with uh, Phil Mickelson. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people on the Lesson T about it because it's kind of hard to ignore uh, the comments that he had made about the Saudi Golf League and the PGA Tour and how it's all sort of turned on its head on him. And you know, from my perspective, it's it's interesting to listen to people's differing opinions. It, it's hard for some who are fans of his uh, to accept the, the comments that he made and sort of how this is all kind of caving in on him. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, I just wish that maybe he'd have thought it through a little more. And obviously, we're never going to know the whole story, right? So there's got to be a reason, um, maybe beyond what he says outwardly in the public, that he's was trying to tie in with the Saudi Golf League. But at the end of the day, um, maybe some good management from uh, the people around him would have saved him a lot of trouble here. Uh, It's tough when you get players who play this game and make so much money for them to talk about how money is left on the table. And they're entitled to everything that they've earned. These, These players, these men and women, have worked really hard to get to where they are. Uh, to have the ability to be the 1% of the 1% to make the big money. So they're entitled to their their thoughts and opinion. Unfortunately, they are the 1% there, and I think they've, you know, sometimes some of the comments come out a little bit the wrong way. And I think you always have to have some um, some thought before you speak in terms of what you say. And I think Mickelson, in his case, it just came out, obviously it came out in an interview, uh, and then the comments were posted. And I just feel like, you know, obviously, based on his uh, his sort of, we won't call it a retraction, but his apology lately, obviously uh, rethought those comments. Now, obviously, also, <laughs> it's easy to uh, have that come out when you've got the whole world caving in on you about it um, and just put that statement out there. So how sincere it is, well, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll never know. But I think at the end of the day, the PGA Tour is a great product. Uh, maybe there is some uh, tweaking that can be done to... 
uh, give the players the full uh, financial windfall from what they make for the PGA Tour and uh, its partners. But at the end of the day, um, there's got to be a better way to do it than, than the way Phil handled it to start. And hopefully they're, they're going to um, move on from this. And I hope that he comes out of it better um, than when he left. And I think when you listen to the, the comments, I think Rory McIlroy, who has really become, goodness, a really good ambassador for the game and is such a great interview uh, and so sincere and, and thoughtful, I think what he said about Mickelson when uh, Mickelson's comments about the Saudi League and the PGA Tour came out, they were on point and he was very blunt about it. But then... Recently, you'll hear that he said, hey, I believe in forgiveness and second chances uh, in relation to uh, Mickelson. And I think that was a fantastic comment on Rory's part. And I certainly hope that that's the way things come out. I hope we see Phil come out of this better than when he started. And as for the golf league, uh, who knows? Uh, You know, at the end of the day, we won't get into the politics of it here. But uh, the PGA Tour is is where all these guys want to be. And certainly I'm not really interested in watching any other product because I think they've got the best product out there. So we'll, we'll move on and, and look forward to the, a big year on the PGA Tour. Masters is coming up. And speaking of which, first off, shout out this week. Just getting on here. It's, uh, what is today? Tuesday. Scotty Scheffler pulled out the win at Bay Hill this week. Uh, that golf course looked unbelievable. Uh, I've played it. Certainly not in the conditions that they played it under. The rough there, I, I can't even imagine playing some of the holes there uh, out of that rough. Unbelievable. I know some of the players were a little bit uh, upset. McElroy was one of them about the conditions being uh, a little bit, maybe, I don't know if he used the word unfair. I can't remember the exact words he used, but he was a little miffed, to say the least, saying that he was playing really well and shot a pair of 76s on the weekend. And that's what happens on some of these course setups. Having played some tour courses, having played uh, a couple places very close to PGA Tour events, uh, held at the facilities, I can tell you that the course setups that these players are playing are nothing like most of us ever will see. Uh, Really good players who play at their home tracks uh, would struggle tremendously out of the lies and the rough and the green speeds and the whole locations you can change some of these golf courses immensely just by the whole locations that you would not normally put in play for member play or regular public play totally can change the golf course so uh shout out to scotty Scheffler for a great win and looking forward to the players championship this week it's going to be uh you know as, as it's often termed the fifth major Obviously, it's got a, a great history at Sawgrass, and I think we're going to see uh, some great golf this week. Justin Thomas, the defending champion, so we'll see if uh, JT can get uh, get on track here and back it up, back-to-back years. It'll be fun. It'll be fun to watch, and we all know what we're looking for, too. We're all looking forward to watching the, uh, the great shots or the absolute train wreck on 17, the par 3. So, you know, we always look forward to that one. We'll see what the uh, golf ball in the water count is this year. So anyway, moving on, grab a sip here. Let's start talking about uh, about some golf stuff. Uh, so first off, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of my students, uh, Wes and Don, asked me in the email about course management and mental approach. So it's awfully difficult in front of a microphone to cover this stuff, but here's... Uh, Here's my take on this. There's some great stuff out there in the world of golf about 
managing your game. Uh, one that just comes to the mind off the top of my head is Decade, Scott Fawcett's um, amazing program that has helped tons of players understand how to manage their game and, and play the percentages, if you will, um, and understand how best to get the ball in the hole and, and work their way around a golf course. My basic advice to a lot of my students is, look, the question I ask them often, and I think a lot of them don't, uh, are not prepared for this question, and here it is. Where do you want to miss? And a lot of them don't understand that. I think too many students and a lot of you out there are so focused on the dangerous target rather than the soft target. And good players are going to play to the places where they can bail out and have some relief, forgiveness, whatever word you want to use. I think when you look back at, uh, at Tiger's career, just as an example, everybody views Tiger as sort of, you know, as one of the greats of all time. You can argue if you want about that. But, you know, everybody views it as Tiger made tons of birdies, uh, drove the ball amazing, uh, long, greatest iron player ever, maybe, pressure packed player, you name it, right? But I think everybody has a bit of a skewed version. If you look at how Tiger played, Tiger was ultra conservative, especially as he, his game got better. He got more conservative and knew that if he avoided mistakes, he would make enough birdies and a lot less mistakes than the rest of the field, and he would win. And certainly if you look at his Open Championship victory in 2006, if I get it right, he hit one driver off the tee during the week. He had irons uh, off the tee. Now the course was playing burnt out, but how many players would have stuck to that? And so I think when you learn how you're going to miss it, where you're going to miss it, that makes your game so much better, just gives you a different viewpoint on how you're looking at the golf course. So first thing you have to do is you have to understand where, where is my miss pattern? Where do I miss the ball? Okay, how big is my pattern? And the goal for us as a team would be to reduce that, that dispersion pattern, right? And then you've got to be able to take that pattern and point it in the right place. And I, I will go over this with some of my students, you know, and, and we'll talk about, a, a, say, just for example, a, a left hole location over a bunker. And too many of my students will see the distance to the flag. They'll shoot the flag. They'll use their GPS, whatever it may be. And then what they'll do is they get super honed in on that number and where the flag is. It's like everything else goes dark. Where a good player is thinking, okay, what's my minimum number to, to cover the bunker in front of it? What's the back edge? Where can I hit this in the middle of the green that's going to give me the easiest putt possible? And understanding where their miss is. And so they're going to aim in a very conservative spot, and then they're going to play aggressively to their conservative spot. Um, and that to me is how you're going to get better with course management, not taking your max out seven iron. Okay. Not thinking you're going to, uh, attack a flag from 150 yards. I think if you take the approach that everything you hit, and this comes from my good buddy, uh, Chris George, I remember, I always use this one all the time. He told me, look, you shouldn't be aiming at a flag unless you can throw it on the green. Now, for some of you, that might be a bit too conservative depending on your ability level but I think you should take that to heart and see how well you play 
And I think if you can start to understand where you miss it and really think about the soft targets, where can I miss this? You're going to give yourself better opportunities to make less big numbers, make more pars, and you know what? You might roll in the occasional birdie. And all of a sudden, your scores start to go down because your big numbers are going away and you're making more pars with the occasional odd birdie in there. So that's, that's sort of, from a course management perspective, really, really important, I think, for us to understand your own game. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that here. But your own game and then taking a, uh, a soft target, where am I going to miss this approach? If you can do that, understand your shot pattern and chip and putt it like crazy, uh, you'll probably do pretty well. So hopefully that, that clears up some of it for you. It's just There's just too, much, uh, too, too many players taking way too many aggressive lines out there for their skill level. Okay. Uh, let's see. What else do we have on the list here? This is a good one. Uh, Ricky, thanks for giving me, a, giving me a, a good one here, Ricky. Just saw Ricky on the Lesson T Saturday. We had a good session. Uh, Ricky talks about something that a lot of you asked me about, so this is a great one. Um, and I'm sort of paraphrasing it and putting it together from an email, but Ricky talks about balance. And we're not talking about physical balance, about balancing your swing changes going from the range to the golf course. Um, uneven lies and balancing your new swing and taking it and looking at it and saying, okay, what am I focusing on? Am I focusing on feels or am I focusing on making a score? So there's a lot in there, okay? I think the first thing we want to tell students when they we start working on a change, and we obviously, from my perspective as a coach, there's a, there's a rule we have. It's, hey, number one rule in coaching is do no harm. So we're always taking an approach, what is the least invasive way I can help this person in front of me, especially given that the vast majority of the people in front of me anyway in particular are folks who have a job, they have families, they're not at the golf course every day practicing. These aren't these aren't tour players. You guys are trying to have fun with the game. You love the game, but you want to get better. So how do we do that? Okay, well, least invasive way. Okay, fine. So we try the least invasive way first. And I think sometimes you have to make some changes because the least invasive way just isn't working. And there's only so much skill we can develop because there's just not enough quality technique behind the skill. Okay. So when we do that, the question I invariably get is, okay, well, should I just stop playing for a while in practice? And my answer to that is always emphatically no. And there's a couple reasons why. First off, you're, you're in this game to play it. Okay, now I know some of you really enjoy just practicing and being at the range and just being around it, and that's, that's cool. It's its own thing, and it's still, it's still golf. But you want to play the game. So my take on it is, look, take a different approach. I don't want you to not play, but you're going to have to manage your expectations a little bit and give yourself a break. If you want to do a swing change, if we're working on something that is, is more invasive than we had hoped for, I don't know that it's the best idea for you to go play your weekend uh, you know, four-person uh, gambling group uh, or your Nassau or whatever you like to play or your five-man wolf game uh, with your buddies for money. But what you can do is you can go out there and say, hey, look, I want to play, and I'm going to practice on the golf course. Now, I'm not suggesting that you drop 10 balls in the middle of the fairway uh, because your superintendent's going to hate you for that. But what I am saying is use the golf course as its own range. 
you get one ball, maybe you hit two off the tee if you get an extra minute and you can manage it. Okay, great. But you're using the golf course as your playground. Imagine having your own golf course to practice on. Just think of it that way. And yes, you got to pay to get out there, but you've got this immense space to work on your game in the, in the cauldron that maybe matters the most, right? Like it's the hardest part, place to do it. We talk about it all the time. So I think it's a great opportunity for you if you adjust your mindset to take the golf swing out there and say, okay, I'm going to focus on a feel here. I'm going to make a practice swing. I'm going to pick a target. I'm going to go through my process, I'm gonna, and I'm going to go. And what I often tell my students is, look, you've got your process part, choosing your club, uh, reading the lie, all that stuff. You've got your pro- part of the process where you are going through your routine and setting up. And then you've got just letting it go and swinging. And it's like, look, if you do the first two well and you let go, you swing with no fear, you try and accomplish what you're trying to accomplish in the swing, whatever it may be, to the target, and it doesn't come out the way you envisioned it, you're going to learn from that. There's the failure thing I keep talking about, right? And then the other part, too, is you say, okay, well, I got two out of the three things right. I went, I chose the right club. I know I did. I, I went through my process well. Those two things went well. The third one just didn't, and the third one's the hardest. The third one didn't come out the way I wanted it to. But you get a win. You get a couple wins there. Say, all right, I'm happy with what I did there. I know I just got to keep going. And so you can take that um, viewpoint. You can also take a viewpoint and say, hey, look, I'm going to keep score today, but I'm going to keep score of every shot I hit that I felt like I did what I was supposed to do. And that's your score for the day. I, I think there's there's a lot of ways to um, to attack a swing change as Ricky's asking here, and still balance playing the game and having fun, you know, and then you can have a long-term goal. And then I think, you know, again, if you get so wrapped up in a one-dimensional approach to how you, uh, in, and how you uh, envision or how you assess whether you had fun or not that day, you're going to have a hard time. Because if your only uh, assessment of how you had fun that day is your score and that's it, and you know you're making swing changes, then it's probably in the beginning maybe not going to go as well as you'd hope. And you're going to start to either improvise, which is the last thing as a coach I want you to do. I want you to stick to the plan. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes patience. Or you're going to start to lose hope, and you're going to revert. The last thing I would want you to do is to go on the golf course and say, I I can't do this. I'm just going to swing my my old way. Well, that's fine. But understand what you've decided to do there. You've decided to basically take an additional day to get better. And now you're that much further back because you didn't learn anything. Um, and now you're just reverting back. And then we're going to be back to square one when you come back to me in the next lesson and say, look, I tried. I just couldn't do it. And my information isn't going to change on my end. I'll certainly talk to you and talk you through it and coach you. But if I believe in what I'm teaching you, and I better on my end if I'm getting into the invasive stuff, uh, then we both got to, you know, we got to both, you know, row in the same direction. And if you're going to row against me, um, this is, you know, it's never going to work. So at the end of the day, my suggestion would be get out there, have fun, get your practice in away from the golf course if you want, but get out there and play and adjust how you're going to assess whether you were successful or had fun that day. Did you enjoy the process? Did you try to feel something in your practice swings and be, make sure it's exaggerated? 
and try and let it go and swing with no fear. If you can do that, I promise you, it's going to be worth the effort. Uh, and you're just going to have to, to grind through. And as I talk about offense, like, look, enjoy the journey in this whole thing. Part of the fun is learning to get better. So I think that's a, that's a big piece uh, that we need, to, uh, we need to remember when we're getting swing changes and we're trying to play the game while we do it. So it's a good one, Ricky. Thanks. Uh, as I take another drink here, just water. Uh, it, well, this is a good one. We, we talked about this. Um, Jude uh, is asking me, because I know he practices with simulators. And uh, I spoke about this uh, with uh, Bernie Najar and Trillium Rose, I believe, when we in our first podcast of this year about indoor practice. And Jude's asking sort of, what's the good and bad in the simulators? Um, are there good things, bad things about it? And, and he's also asking about proper use and good indoor drills. So I think this is a great question for a lot of you who are gaining access to indoor facilities. They're popping up everywhere. Uh, the technology is now to the point where a lot of you are getting your own. Uh, however small or uh, limited it may be, it's still giving you feedback in some way. And I, I had mentioned this, I think, before, but, you know, eight years ago, uh, I was at uh, Titleist Performance Institute Level 1 training, and Dr. Greg Rose stood up in front of the group and mentioned, look, launch monitor technology is going to get better, and it's going to be available to the consumer. At the time, it was literally just, you know, TrackMan and some of the other competitors of TrackMan that were full-size and <laughs> and full-ticket items. Tell me, tell me about it. Uh, those are not cheap items, trust me. Uh, but now it's becoming so easy for people to get some feedback and take it to the range. But in this case, Jude's talking about, you know, indoor simulators. I, I think what's, let's talk about, well, let's talk about the bad stuff first. Uh, certainly, we're talking about, and this kind of goes to the previous question, right? Like, we're not really playing the game there as much in the environment as we can. Obviously, it's a much uh, different environment. It's a lab environment, if you will, to some degree. You can certainly add... Uh, variability to it, uh, challenges, pressure, and those will all help you get better. So, and let's be clear, you can become a better golfer hitting balls indoors and working in a simulator. You just have to do it the right way. So that's sort of the bad side of it, right? Is, 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 is it applicable to the game? I I think it is to, to a degree. You've got to include both, but I think it is. The good parts are, well, too numerous to mention, but I think you know, the ability for you to see what the ball is doing, uh, get some feedback, play games. And that's, that's where I think you want to, you want to live. I think what we don't want you to do, if I'm speaking from a coach's perspective, is live where the numbers are. Uh, Jude's a good example. Jude and I have an agreement that he's only going to look at maybe one or two numbers. And I explain to him what he's looking for. And that's it. He doesn't have to dive into all 20, whatever it is, 26 parameters that TrackMan has on the screen. He's just kind of monitoring, based on what he's working on, where the, this particular number or two goes. And then he is free to play games and everything, and I think that's important. Creating testing games, I showed you how to do that. The simulators of holes, great. It gives you the variable practice, the spacing between shots in terms of time. All of that stuff is great. So I think there are way, way, way more uh, uh, good things than bad things when it comes to the simulator stuff. In terms of indoor drills, uh, 
I think oftentimes uh, it, it gets a little bit difficult, but I think you know drills are a little tough and they're very uh, they're very person very specific to the individual. I'll just say that maybe the biggest, simplest, most effective drill in my opinion is just working on uh, horizontal contact on the face, toe to heel, and also where we land the club front to back. A lot of you already know this. I've already I've put videos up on, on my YouTube about the ultimate practice station. Essentially taking some a yellow can of foot powder, spraying a line on the mat perpendicular to your target line, putting a couple of soft objects on right on the line with enough space to put your club head in between, and then spray the face of the club and put a ball on that line between the two objects and make a strike. And here's what I'll tell you. If you can land the club relative to that line on it or just in front of it, target side, you can strike the ball in the middle of the face and not hit one of the obstacles toe to heel. You are probably going to hit the ball pretty darn solid because it'll be in the middle of the face and you're landing the club in the right spot. It's not a guarantee for direction because the face can be a little open or closed. You could have some path issues. But at the very least, you're making clean strikes. And then if you add in the ability to hit us into a simulator, then you can see where the ball goes and you can make face adjustments. You can play around with that. But if you're somebody who has a net and a mat at home and no feedback, that drill to me is one of the best for you. And then you focus on balance at the end. Okay? It's a great way for you to start to learn in a home setting how to strike the ball as cleanly as possible. And then if you're doing that drill and you have a simulator in front of you where you can see where the ball goes, then what I would challenge you to do is not get into micro adjustments. Stay in the least invasive mode and say, okay, I did everything correct there. I hit the ball in the middle. I landed the club on the ball first, the ground second. Didn't hit the obstacles. It was really solid, but man, it went 30 yards left. So if it started 30 yards left, then the face was closed when you hit it. Okay, can you, and I'm talking about a right-hander here, obviously, can I hit another one and make it go 30 yards to the right and still maintain the contact? See if you are skilled enough to make the face point the opposite direction. And now, if the next shot you can do 30 yards to the right, now the next one I want you to hit it as straight as possible. And you start to do some of the work that we often talk about in the teaching circles to learn the club face. This is skill development. And again, a lot of you should be operating more in this area than technique because you don't have the time. You've got way too much stuff going on. You got families. We all got things happening. It's it's lightning pace uh, all the time. It seems like you've got to find a way to maximize what you do. So that's my suggestion. Um, you know, for using simulators to your advantage, or at least a net and a mat and some golf balls in front of you. Contact above all else. Remember that a lot of my students already know this. Contact above all else first. Then we can fix direction and we can add speed. You cannot do it in the reverse order, okay? If you are not hitting it well and striking out of the middle of the face, the rest of it won't matter, okay? It becomes even more unpredictable. Hit it solid all the time. Okay, uh, let's see. What do we got here? Uh, KP, Kevin Pride. All right, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin brings up a good one on here that I wanted to, wanted to address here. And I think we were just having a discussion with somebody else about this, actually. Kevin brought up the idea of a shot clock. Uh, and I'm sure KP's talking about pro golf in particular. This is a discussion that came up the other day. And I'm, I know this has been sort of um, batted around a little bit in the golf circles and maybe even at the higher levels. I'm not sure. But uh, 
slow play is obviously a, um, a sore subject, and everybody's got uh, everybody's got their their take on it. And in fairness, and I I believe it was my good friend uh, James Hong who mentioned this. I think in a post I saw the other day. As coaches, we are partly responsible for some of it. We talk often about going through a routine and having your routine. And so sometimes that can be taken out of context, meaning uh, you don't want to rush, take your time, don't worry about anybody else. Well, that's not exactly accurate. So let's be clear about that before we talk about the shot clock part. You can have a really good, solid routine where you feel comfortable and not rushed. The problem for a lot of you is you are not ready to play when it's your turn. So for an example, uh, say KP and I are out playing. While Kevin's over his ball and he's waggling and about to pull the trigger, I'm behind my ball. I've already got my club in my hand. I'm looking at the target. I'm reading the wind, making sure I got the right club. And as soon as he makes contact with his ball, I am walking in to my shot. And my routine is already underway. His ball hasn't even hit the ground yet. So by the time his ball hits the ground, I'm over it, I'm relaxed, I'm looking, and I'm pulling the trigger. That doesn't take too long, yet I never felt rushed. Part of this is just the, the being ready, get out of the golf cart, grab three clubs, and walk to your ball and send your partner across to his ball. So we can get into a longer discussion about that, and we won't necessarily do that here, but learn how to play ready golf without being rushed and you can still go through your routine. So to that end, at the tour level, there's a lot going on, and there's a lot at stake, and I get that. How we would do a shot clock, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think there's ways to do it. Maybe you have to have someone with the group, and as soon as a player enters a certain area or zone, they are considered on the shot clock starting, uh, and we, we, hit the, uh, we hit the button, and they're, they're going. Uh, we certainly have enough people traveling with each group, whether it be you know walking scores, um, you know markers. You've got people taking shot link data, all of it. So one more person cer- certainly wouldn't be uh, a-, a problem, but we would definitely have to find a way to get the shot clock started correctly. And knowing what I know and just how how golfers are. Um, that's where the gray area would be, right? Like that's where a golfer who gets a bad time or whatever you want to call it, they are going to raise hell because they'll say that the clock started too early. And so if you wanted to do that, and I'm not against it because I think the pace of play really has to improve. Um, It it just gets, for lack of a better word, it gets glacial uh, at times. Uh, and we won't mention too many names here because I don't think it really helps anything to do that. We all know who the slow players out there are, uh, at least as we perceive it by watching it on TV. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, we got to make sure that there's a foolproof method. It's black and white, right? As much uh, black and white as we can get, like the rule book would be, uh, before we start that clock. And we give them a certain amount of time to put, get up there and pull the trigger, uh, and, and they go. So I think, you know, that's, that's my take on that. It, it, I don't know that there's a better answer to make the pace go any faster. They're not going to call penalties on the players uh, because they're just, they're just not doing it. I don't remember when the last time that happened. I feel like that's happened maybe in the last year on the LPGA Tour. Uh, I don't know. remember. Some of you may. 
I didn't even look it up, frankly, but on the men's tour when the last time that happened. So I, I think there's something to be done there because the, the problem we're running into is besides, again, our job as coaches and making sure people understand how to use the routine in an effectively uh, in an effectively paced manner, it's starting to work its way down the ranks into junior golf, and it's becoming more a problem there too. So I think we've got we've to cut it off at the pass as quick as we can and start teaching the kids how to play faster. That will certainly help to when they get up to the higher levels. And we'll see where it goes. But I think it's a, it's a great topic to discuss for sure. So thanks for that one, KP. Okay, what else we have? All right, we'll talk about a shot. How about that? Uh, Dave, um, Dave asked about the long bump bunker shot. I mean, ideally what I would like to do here is just not talk about it because it's the one we don't practice. So why talk about it? It's like the, uh, it's like the elephant in the room, uh, to be sure when it comes to, uh, to golf practice. But I think in all honesty and all fairness, we need to talk about it. So there's a, there's a couple options. Why is this shot so hard for everybody? And when we talk about a long bunker shot, let's define it as, let's just say we've got more than uh, 20 yards to the pin, okay? Uh, th- that's sort of an arbitrary number, but just visualizing pictures in my head of distances to the pin. And I would say, okay, more than 20 yards. It starts to get really tricky. And then you get up to 40, 50 yards, and it really gets a lot of fun. Uh, so first off, why is, why is this shot such a problem? Well, part of the problem is repetition. And when you ask yourself, okay, what shots do I practice when I'm, when I'm able to practice, this one might be at the rock bottom of the list. So what does lack of reps do? Well, lack of reps, uh, has an effect on your confidence level. And as soon as we start eroding your confidence level, then you start to doubt what you're doing and you start doubting everything. And then you all, everyone listening knows that once you have doubt and you pull the trigger anyway, how often does that work out for us? Not particularly well. <laughs> so I think we got we to gotta start by talking about dedicating some reps to these kind of shots, even if it's just saying, okay, twice a month, I'm going to find a, a, a a spot where I can practice long bunker shots. And I'm just going to do 10 or 15 of them a couple times a month. Imagine what that minimal practice would do for you relative to the the current amount of practice you're putting into a 50-yard bunker shot. Okay, so I I think like anything else, you've got to ration your practice to some degree and and put it in the right areas. In terms of the technique, a couple things I would tell you. Don't try and do it with a 60-degree wedge, Okay. For a lot of you, again, when we talk about minimal practice, we want something where we don't have to swing super hard. We want to minimize the, the chances we're going to hit too close to the ball and drive it over the, over the surface into the next county. So I think first thing is taking something that you can make a long, smooth swing with and still create a little bit of energy into it, but have an ability to hit a little too far behind it maybe and still get most of the distance you need and get it on the surface. I like teaching students to do it with a gap wedge, maybe even a pitching wedge. The longer, the, the, the further the pin gets from me, the, the less I like making hard swings. Uh, I prefer to make longer swings that still have some pace to them, but they don't have rapid acceleration. And as, again, as soon as we start moving the pin too far away from you, you're starting to compromise your ability 
again, especially with lack of practice, compromise your ability to make clean contact. So longer swing, more club, face barely open, shuffle your feet in there a little bit, get stable, and think about making a long backswing and a long follow-through. And maybe a good image for you would be watch Ernie Els hit, and Ernie Els is a great bunker player, but I'd say, look, go watch Ernie Els make a, a smooth eight iron swing. How long and relaxed and smooth it is and full. Then go into the bunker, take your gap wedge or your pitching wedge, open the face just a shade, shuffle into your bunker setup, a little weight on the left side, and make a long flowing swing like Ernie Els makes with an eight iron, trying to hit the sand a couple inches behind. And I think what you'll find is the ball will travel out of there really nicely because you're not trying to create extra effort or energy. You're just trusting extra club, extra swing length, and we're giving ourselves some built-in, what we'll call a forgiveness in that. So again, the right tool, the right mental approach, and a little bit of practice a couple times a month, 10 or 15 balls, uh, will work wonders. And if you have time to hit more than that, play a ladder drill. Start at the furthest target, and then try dropping balls in five-yard increments coming back to you until you have to switch clubs down now to a sandwich, then keep coming to you, switch to your 58 or your 60, and get up close, and then work your way all the way back out if you have time. You don't think that that awareness of distance control and contact isn't going to make you a better bunker player? Not only that, but it's going to help you with the longer bunker shots because you're working long to short and short to long. Now, like we talked about with the club face and contact, you're skill building. Now you can make mistakes in a practice environment and learn from them, and then your skill is going to go up. Your confidence level will go up, and next time you get in for the long bunker shot, you're not going to wish that you you know, could just pick it up and throw it out of there. You're going to have the confidence level built by reps and quality practice to hit a great shot. So there you go, Dave. Now next time you come in, we'll work on that and see how it goes. All right. So uh, let's see here. We got... We got some a couple other good ones here. Ah, okay. So another sip here. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Doug asked me a, a, a couple good ones here from Doug. So we're going to start with um with terminology. Doug watches a lot of golf on TV. You'll hear the announcers say a couple things. He was asking about them: shallowing the club and releasing the club. So, Doug, I think what they're what they're referring to with those, and we'll sort of take general takes on these because we don't have specific examples, but shallowing the club just means, and it's, it's, a, it's a term within teaching that is sort of kicked around a lot. And there's a lot of um, discussion about what it means for the individual player in front of them. But I'll just take, again, I'll take a general uh, uh, route here and say shallowing the club means think of it this way. Uh, I'll give you an example. When a, when a baseball hitter stands up at the plate, he's got the bat pointed, more often than not, straight up at the sky. That's steep. When he steps in to strike the ball, the ball's coming at waist high, obviously, but when, we're going using an example. He steps in, and the bat lays down or gets more parallel-ish to the ground. That is shallowing. Okay? So in golf, we don't play the game on that waist-high plane. We're playing it down at the ground, but we still need a measure of the club being a little bit flatter or shallower coming in to the golf ball to be able to strike it 
fairly cleanly. Oftentimes I'm discussing the, the difference between moving up in your swing and around. And in a good golf swing, there's a, there's a blend of both between up and around. We don't want too much Ferris wheel. We don't want too much merry-go-round. We kind of play kind of in the middle there. And so on the downswing, we definitely don't want too much Ferris wheel. Too much merry-go-round with the club being too shallow and too flat to the ground uh, hurts too. But that's generally what they're talking about, Doug, is sort of the, the, um, the angle of the shaft of the club, we'll call it halfway down. So if that's somewhere sort of in between a merry-go-round and a Ferris wheel, you're usually dealing with pretty good, pretty good shots overall. Some players are steeper than that, more upright like the bat or more Ferris wheel, and they can still play. Others can lay it down even flatter and closer to a merry-go-round, and they just have to move differently to play well too. A lot of ways to do it. But at the end of the day, that's sort of what they're talking about. Uh, in terms of releasing the club, uh, that's kind of a tough one because, it, it, you know, again, it's a, sort of an old-school golf term that's sort of used. But they're just really talking about, when the announcers are talking about, they're usually comparing it in a, in a slow-motion video from behind the golfer shooting down the target line towards the, the target. And they're talking about how the, the golfer's body turns and their arms rotate and the club looks like it's almost being thrown down uh, some of them were in the general direction of the target or just left of the target for a right-handed golfer. And that's all they're talking about, sort of how their arms and hands and club head flow through the ball. There's no steering. Um, it's just letting it go, so to speak. And you can talk about the the positioning and, and what the hands and forearms and all that should do. I'm not going to get into that. That's just generally when you're talking about a TV announcer talking about it, that's what they're talking about. It's this beautiful sort of flowing look-through impact uh, that you'll see the best players do. Conversely, when you see a higher handicap player, uh, it, it looks a little less pretty. A lot of folded elbows and a lot of um, uh, chicken wings and all that good stuff. And we got to help those golfers find the, the way to get the club uh, a little shallower. There you go, on the way down, so they can release it better. So I hope that sort of answers those, Doug, uh, those for you, Doug. Another one Doug asked that I thought was a really good topic to cover here, and that's the question of athleticism. And, and Doug asked, frankly, in the in the email, he says, look, it, is it helpful to have an athletic background to help you play better golf? Is it easier? And Doug, we just had this discussion a little bit on my previous podcast with my PGA professional friends, and the, the short answer is yes. Certainly, there's, a, there's an element of movement, especially if you're playing a throwing or side-on game. Uh, taking my background, obviously, with hockey, th- side-on throwing a baseball, uh, you know, there, there's tons of them. But that athleticism, the ability to jump, to throw, uh, to run, all those things tie in and do help you have a better sensation of your body and that hand-eye coordination that can be very helpful. Some of my best athletes who are just picking up golf really have a, a built-in sense of how to move and turn their body and pivot, is using our golfing terms, a little bit because they've done it in other sports. And a lot of times, because that's one of the first questions I ask students is, what other sports have you played? And if somebody says they played baseball, I say, oh, great. Played hockey? Great. Like, love it. Because they're playing games that have some similar characteristics shift turn throw shift turn shoot a lot of different uh, aspects you can take out of those that being said 
it doesn't mean that you can't be a good golfer if you don't have an athletic background. We just got to show you ways to tap into movement uh, that may not be necessarily in your brain tied into an athletic endeavor, but we all walk, we all move, we all turn. We do different things in our, our daily lives that can help you. And as an example, I, I would say, look, if I get somebody who's maybe doesn't have an athletic background, pivoting and moving and, and um, those kinds of things don't come easily to them or aren't as natural, I want to find ways to tap into their brain to, to do that. One of the examples many of you know who have taken lessons from me is using ropes. Uh, I have four, probably three or four of those ropes that are made by uh, E.A. Tischler, who's a wonderful teacher out at uh, Olympia Fields. hope I didn't get that wrong, EA. Uh, but, uh, and he makes these ropes, which are fantastic. They're quality made. They're made for the, your height, um, weighted differently. And I use those a ton. For somebody who is newer into it or doesn't have that athletic background, I might put the rope in their hand and just get them to let some rhythm go. Then sort of just turn with it. Take it back. Get it over your shoulder. Now, whip it through and hit the ground. Just kind of... St- hit the ground with it a little bit and end up on your other shoulder at the end and face the target. And all of a sudden they start reacting to the weight of this, this rope. And you see the athletic movement come out or the daily movement, if you don't want to call it athletic movement, because we still have to move and walk and sit and turn and pivot to get out of our car and turn. I mean, there's so many different things that we do that have tie-ins to golf. So essentially, you know, Doug, that's the, 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 the long-winded way of saying it there is, does athleticism help? Absolutely. Does it, is it a guarantee that you will be a good golfer? No, because effort matters. Uh, but I think it also means that, hey, if you're not a particularly great athlete, we can still make you a good golfer. If you've got uh, the time, you've got the desire, and you've got patience and direction, uh, you can be a bulldog out there, and you can be a good player. There's no question about it. You just have to learn what your strengths are. And know what you're going to have to do well to make the ball go in the hole. Because the ball doesn't know. It just knows it has to go in the hole in the least amount of strokes. So there you go. Uh, Talking about, Mike uh, was asking me about a range. Well, first off, he's asking me about sort of a range warm-up. And Mike, I'm hoping I'll get this one out the way you were hoping. But I, I think what we're talking about is, you know, maybe getting to the range before you play. I think that's maybe what Mike was talking about. So let's talk a little bit about getting ready to play golf. So first off, if you have the ability and the time to get your body ready in some way outside of the golf course before you play, I would highly recommend it. Most every player on tour is doing something in the fitness trailer the morning of of their round, most likely. Some type of treatment or training to to get loose and get uh, their body firing. Now that's not possible for most of us. But if you have the time to do some some exercise in a light way, some stretching, some foam rolling, um, some core work, maybe some light leg stuff, uh, just to get the body firing, I highly recommend it. Uh, I always try when I'm getting out on Tuesdays with my gang here, my, my Nest student community, uh, I usually try and get up early as I normally do anyway and do a workout before I play. I have a special one that I'll do before I play golf, so I'm not too tired out, but it definitely gets the blood flowing, uh, gets the muscles firing, and it really makes my body feel good before I go out. So if you can do that, great. If not, make sure you're spending enough time 
swinging a couple of clubs or a weighted club before you hit some balls and loosen up. And I think you also then have to divide your time. If you get to the range, get to the course, say an hour before your tee time, or let's just say even 45 minutes, let's call it 40 minutes to get uh, to where you want to be. Then I think what we want to do then is uh, start by maybe just loosening up, maybe go to the putting green, hit a couple putts, just get your mind into it a little bit. Hit some two, three footers, make a few putts, hit a few chips to some different holes, and then head over to the range. Start with some short wedge shots. Feel the flow, good contact. Work your way up to some some bigger uh, gap wedges. Then start working through your clubs any way you like. But I would also be cautious about hitting too many balls. Some of you want to go to the range and turn it into a practice session. That's not what it is. It's a warm-up session. you got to figure out what swing you have that day. If you have to make an adjustment and it, it really needs an adjustment, then you need to do that there. But otherwise, you gotta, you got to dance with who you brung, as they say. So you got to figure out which way it's going. Work up, get some drivers going, hit a couple of tee balls with clubs that you might be hitting off the tee that day so you're prepared, and then get over and hit some more chips and putts uh, before you go out. Start with some, you know, just around the green. Uh, get a feel for the grass you're chipping out of. Start with some short putts. And then a big one for me is getting into lag putts. Get your speed down. If you've got minimal time to practice putting, do 25, 30, 35, 40 footers, Get your speed down, do a bunch of those, and then hit three and four footers and get out of there. If you're limited time, I wouldn't waste your time with eight, 10, 12 footers. The odds, no matter how good you are, that are against you that you're going to make them anyway. It's like 49% make percentage on the PGA Tour from eight feet. That's the best players in the world on the best surfaces. So the point there is practice it if you can. Obviously, it'd be great to. I'm not saying never do it. But in this instance where we're warming up before a round, I think... We want to maximize what really matters, speed control on long putts and being able to make the three, four, five footers. If you can do those, you're, you're going to score better. So it's not super specific, but I think just you, you get the picture. It's, it's less about uh, fixing that day and more about seeing what you have. Okay? And then Mike asked another good one. Uh, I think this is a great one sort of us, for us to wind it down to, and that is about breaking a plateau. How do I track, what should I be tracking, and how do I apply the stats to breaking a plateau in my game? And I think we run into that oftentimes. We get a, a pretty substantial uh, change in handicap and ability level, and then there's a, there's, a, there's a point, right, where it seems like it's really hard to move the needle. Breaking 100 to me is, is an easy one for a, as a coach to help somebody get through pretty quickly, Breaking 90 can come fairly fast with some decent changes and some course management stuff. And then we start to get into the whole breaking 80 uh, often and getting into that range more often, and it gets much harder to shave the strokes off. So when we talk about applying the stats, and Mike knows this as do all my students, but I I love my students using Arcos if if they can get used to using it. I think the strokes gain stuff is just amazing. And it really helps us focus where our needs are. And to that end, when you start to get into this, you know, that, that particular area where you're sort of, you know, 85 and under and you're trying to break 80 all the time and be that kind of a player, it becomes very um, 
very important for you to process the stats uh, correctly. And I, I think when we get into that area, we start looking at uh, penalty strokes. You know, where am I still making one or two big numbers? Uh, and I think also at that point, we start getting into the closer to the green areas in terms of, you know, 50 yards and in. When you talk about the best players, you know, and I'm not even talking about tour players. I'm talking about quality single-digit handicap, low handicap players. They are almost always going to be pretty darn solid with their wedges. And they're going to drive the ball in play, not saying in the fairway, just in play, every hole. And when they do that and they wedge and putt it, I think you're going to have a hard time not playing pretty decent golf. So, and I I think someone taught me that a long time ago. If you were really going to break down what you could work on this year to break through your plateau, I think you look at the stats and let the stats tell you. But I think bottom line is so many students spend so much time working on their iron game. And that's not to discount the approach game at all because it's important. But for a lot of you, if you could drive the ball a little bit better, a little further maybe, but more than anything, hit it solid and have a predictable pattern off the tee, it circles back to our first thing about course management. If you can have a predictable pattern, you know where to aim it, and you can aim it away from the trouble so you know that if you make a mistake, you're in the game on the hole, and you're really good with your wedges and putter, driver wedge putter, you're going to be a better player this year. There's no question about it. But I think focused practice on the correct areas, and that's where the stats will help you. What areas of putting, what areas of wedge play, those that's where we take the stats and apply them. It's not just sort of throwing balls around, chipping and putting it. That's all well and good, but we have to have a, a, a plan. And then on putting, it's, okay, I'm going to do speed drills, ladder drill. Uh, I'm going to work a compass drill around the hole at four feet, put some pressure on myself, And then we're going to look deeper into the stats and say, look, I'm just not making anything from, say, 6 to 12, 15 feet at all. Okay, yeah, now we need to start looking at why that is. And maybe uh, I have a problem with green reading. Maybe I'm not starting the ball in the correct line. Maybe a combination of both. Uh, So then we dig into the weeds a little bit more. But I think you start to look at the stats a little more with a, a more a tighter approach, if you will, uh, and really figure out the exact zones uh, in feet and yards that you need to focus your practice on. So there's a lot to, to dig out there, but I think at the end of the day, positively, uh, or excuse me, looking at your game uh, really closely and not the sunshine and rainbows, which I've talked about before, uh, approach, I think you'll be able to dig out out of the weeds, what you need to work on and get better this year. So a lot to, uh, a lot to unpack on that for sure. For sure. Well, look, uh, that was fun. The time flew by quick on that one. Uh, and my students gave me some great stuff. I want to thank all the students who, uh, who emailed me back about some things. I know there were a few things I didn't get to cover there. I just didn't want to take too, too long here, but hopefully, uh, you know, for those of you listening in, I hope maybe you picked up a couple of nuggets. Maybe just, if nothing else, we're getting your brain thinking about how you can assess your game better this year and looking at the right areas and manage your game a little bit better. Um, don't be afraid if you got to make some swing changes. Don't be afraid to get out there and practice on the golf course, you know. 
find the find the best opportunity. There's nothing better than do it on the course, right? So that's what we're doing it for. So that was great, folks. I appreciate it. Uh, look forward to seeing you all again soon here. Uh, we'll have some great new guests coming up uh, on the Driving Improvement Podcast. I'm excited to get back in this chair a little bit more this year. We're starting out strong, and we're going to finish the year strong uh, for sure. So thanks for all your feedback, and we'll look forward to seeing you all soon. Take care. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Had a blast doing this uh, by myself. I want to extend a shout-out to my students for answering my uh, email back and giving me some great topics to cover today. And to that end, too, if anyone out there has any topics they'd love for me to cover on the show, either with a guest or on one of my Ask the Pro editions, please email me, PGA at gmail, uh, or give me a shout-out on Instagram. I'd be happy to uh, look into it, write it down, find an answer for you. Always looking for great topics to cover. But hopefully you'll learn a thing or two from today's episode. Uh, And until next time, thanks so much for listening to the Driving Improvement Podcast, and we'll see you on the lesson tape.